All right, welcome back to the Forward Podcast. I'm your host, Lance Armstrong. Happy New Year, everybody, 2018. I remember when it was uh, went from 1999 to 2000, and I remember thinking just how crazy, because I grew up watching 2020. Y'all remember that show? It may still be on TV, I don't know, but I was like, how crazy is it that in 20 years it's going to be 2020? And now I sit here and I'm like, oh, we're two years away from 2020. Anyways, it's just a weird little thing I have in my head. Hey, for 2018 on the forward, not only will will we be expanding the show uh, in certain aspects in the sense that we'll now go uh, to video. We've, we've been talking about it forever. We finally got off our butts and got around to doing it. Um, so we'll have a video component uh, in 2018, but also stages will continue to expand as well. So stay tuned for all that. I just got back from uh, from New York City, which, by the way, when I landed, it was 11 degrees. I'm not really sure I've ever felt 11 degrees. It was so cold, like, and you know, ugh, I could never live in that. But I went up there for uh, for a screening of Icarus, and I don't know if you guys have seen Icarus or not. It's a documentary that Brian Fogle made, which started out about one thing and then ended up being a completely different international crazy story America Russia uh, doping conspiracy uh, witness protection suspense drama murder anyways I highly recommend you check out the documentary Netflix has out called Icarus good job to Brian Fogel but they invited me up there to co-host it um, as the film is now uh, looking likely to make the shortlist to be nominated for the Academy Award. So good luck to everybody um, at Netflix. Good luck to Brian and Dan, who made Icarus. And if you haven't seen it, go check it out. So my guest this week is Bodie Miller. I have a long, interesting history with Bodie Miller, and I, I didn't know, well, I didn't know that he would be willing to come on this podcast. And when he said he would, he was awfully hard to pin down. But when I did pin him down, I was like, oh, I don't know how this is going to go. Um, but I got to tell you, uh, I think you'll find it interesting. Everything, obviously, talking ski racing, um, horse racing, believe it or not, his business interests. Uh, it was a fascinating interview. And, uh, you know, Bodie's a force of nature. Here's a guy who obviously is you know, arguably the greatest American skier of all time, scratch golfer, Amazing tennis player. Some say, and if you've been around him, literally one of the best athletes, like pure athletes that's ever lived. So uh, I, I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. We, he and I got some real personal business out of the way right away, which I was glad to do. And um, thanks for tuning in. We've got an exciting year coming up. Happy New Year. Bodie, thanks for being here. Absolutely. I got to start. I have to start with this because this is really where we met, right? In 2006, you said to Rolling Stone, you said, right now, if you want to cheat, you can. Barry Bonds and those guys are just knowingly cheating, but there's all sorts of loopholes. If you say that it has to be knowingly, you do what Lance Armstrong and all those guys do. Every morning, the doctor gives them a box of pills and they don't ask anything. They just take the pills. <clears throat> you said that. And I was like, who is this guy? Like, and I, and in that time in my life, I was like, I am going to nuke this guy. So we were Nike guys. I call Nike. I call, I'm like, screw this guy. So 
the reason I wanted to start with it and read it, two parts. One, I'm terribly sorry. And two, the cool thing is like in two or three years later, I'm at a restaurant in Austin. I don't even remember who I was with. And the lady comes over with this glass of wine that's literally about to flow over the top. She's like, hey, this guy over here bought you a glass of wine. And I'm like, that is the biggest adult pour I've ever seen in my life. And I look over and it's you. And I was like, that is the fucking raddest thing ever. Like that guy could have, he could have poured the glass of wine. I deserve to have the glass of wine poured over my head. And you just, you're like, no, man, it's all good. So. I think it was, you know, it was an interesting time because I had no intent to try to poke anybody at you know i right. wasn't it was just simply an irritation of my own totally independent of any of the people i was sort of mentioning in the yeah. in the quote was um you know the system was just so screwed up and the the way the perception from fans to media to corporate america all the sponsors was just it was shaping it and making it impossible for people to, or not impossible really really difficult and not very um conducive to people taking accountability for what they were doing mm -hmm. or any of the stuff it just didn't make sense and everyone i had tons of baseball player friends and you know in in my sport i was dealing with people who to one degree or another had been involved in you know high level um sports you know whether it was the nutrition side or the supplementation side um to varying degrees so i was speaking from a place of knowledge but it wasn't trying to be accusational it was more informative in a sense of like look this is how it is this is the reality that we live in how about instead of whining about it or bitching about it we just fix it like it was to me it was more a matter of trying to figure out if it was my job or if it was somebody else's job to try to find accountability in that because yeah. i think in that is how you move things forward and what was happening in my opinion in, in my sport as well as other sports was this ongoing denial when then you know ex-athletes greg lamont or you know miguel indurain guys who you know i had exposure to over there you know francesco Mosier, who's you know a great cyclist and they were like 100 percent. we were on we were on these various supplements or, or you know what people would call doping outside the sport but in reality it was simply the program that you were on and the problem became from not accepting what was actually reality and this denial of reality and i was you know, I was young too. I mean, I, you know, I said a lot of stupid things in my life and it was, um, I don't think that was necessarily one of those stupid things. I just wish that I'd had a, you know, a better way of expressing what I was trying to get across. But yeah. in the end it was, you know, it was funny and it was, uh, you know, you roasted me pretty good at the ESPYs, which was great. And, you know, like I said, I have no, I really don't, I forgot about that. I don't really get mad at anybody ever. I mean, I just don't. And I, you know, I, I know I'm as capable as anybody of doing stupid stuff. So it was, it was, uh, and I've always admired what you did in the sport and, you know, totally, you know, not connected to any of the allegations or any of the, you know, in the end, what ended up coming out of it. I just think sports are, are amazing at that level. And, you know, so for me, I was never, I was never upset. And it was funny when I finally ran into you in Austin. And, I know. I was, and, <laughs> that blew me away. It blew me away. I was like, dude, this guy's, that's, that's the coolest thing ever. I don't deserve that. <laughs> I don't know if it was the coolest thing ever, but yeah. Well, nobody else did it. And I and I, I nuked a bunch of people, right? And it was a bad place to be in. And but nobody else was sending over, you know, overly full glasses of wine. You know what? I watched the other day. Just just since <clears throat> I didn't think we were going to get into this, but since we are, I watched Icarus. Have you seen Icarus? Mm -mm. This documentary about the whole Russian doping scheme. And no, but I, I've heard little bits about dude, it. This is next level. Yeah, like it is the craziest. And then it gets all into it gets 
really sort of political because of the Russians and their, you know, yeah, you know, obviously the hacking and but the system. I mean, you talk about the system and right, systematically approaching it, and and it's not like it hasn't been done before. But when I talk about, you know, and again, I've I've caught shit for this since I was a kid because I always said, look, I I get it. Let's just talk about it. Let's have a meaningful conversation. You want to talk about like, you know, be like, oh, you believe in the people should be allowed to dope. I said, look, dude, if somebody got walking down the street is allowed to do these things legally, it's all good, and there, it's all, it's almost doctors are prescribing things in certain ways, and you can get on these programs for HGH or all these different things. Then what is the purpose of restricting athletes from doing the same things? Like I just don't. That to me makes no sense. So as as I've approached it, you know, as I got older and just kind of, I don't know if it's just not caring as much anymore, or people just don't ask me, so I don't think about it the same way. But watching some of the systematic, um, you know, behavior of some of these, like you said, the Russians. I mean, the Austrians did it. The Germans did it. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's there's some shit going on that's pretty, uh, pretty high level, as you said. It, it's. Yeah. It's supported from the very top, so they're basically taking an approach of like, "Look, here's how we're going to do it," and and to me that that should represent some need for change. I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm just optimistic. I get asked the question all the time, like, "What you know?" People try to get me to to go on the record and say, "Well, you know what? We should just since since the agencies are so ineffective, right?" And and I'm not knocking on it. It's just a fact, right? We spend tens of millions of dollars to to pursue this objective. Yeah, hundreds of millions in reality, but right. all the money is well, on the other side. When you consider worldwide, I'm talking domestically. Right. I mean, but it's huge. It's it's yeah. hundreds of millions of bucks, and and you catch less than one percent of the people. And again, this is where I I have to be a little. Nobody really wants to hear me talk about this, but you have to say, okay, that's not that's not successful. Well, the problem is that all the money, and it's the same with hackers. It's the same with anything. The money's on the other side of the fence. You know, I mean, the, there's real motivation on that side. The people on on the trying to catch people's. I mean. They don't really, they have a job. They're, they're mm-hmm. fine. You know, you catch 1%. Woo, we got somebody. Like, yeah. it's like, they're just going about their business. They know you can't keep up with somebody on the other side. They're, even just to devise the test to tr- figure out how to test for something is such a, it's, it's so convoluted and, and slow. I mean, there's no way. The reality is it needs to be approached in a different way. But, you know, like I said, that's a. Right. That's where they try to get me to, like you were just saying, the dude walking down the street who walks into the anti-aging clinic and gets the testosterone gel and the hgh and I'm, and they're like we should just allow it i'm like whoa, whoa, whoa i can't you know i can't say that right mm-hmm. i mean i don't if you have a if you have a kid who you know max my eight-year-old wants to race bikes i don't i don't know that i would be sitting there going okay well this is cool let's and then then it starts to change the math a little bit for me that's where i struggle with that. right and that's my my old my old sort of philosophy on it was was to really have a panel of people and figure out what's safe. You know, if there's, if there's real safety issues, if there's real health risks, mm. especially for different ages or even, you know, because individuals are so different too, if there's real health risks, then that should be your deciding factor. Not some, some random, like I said, convoluted version of what's fair or how, you know, how to keep sports clean. Cause the reality is between nutrition and supplementation and all the other things that are legal that are fine. It's not a matter of fair. Anyway, the well-funded teams are way ahead of the not well-funded teams, not even illegally, just totally above the table. They're just better funded and they have better research and better doctors and better everything else. That so goes on in skiing? It goes on in every sport. Every sport. I mean, you I mean know, even, like, even the NFL, like, okay, yeah. the better funded teams that have better ownership, they're making sure their guys are taken care of, aside from doping. Anything illegal is totally separate, but they're taking care of their guys to a higher level than than teams that aren't well-funded. Yeah. That's that's and, the case across the world. I mean, you could, yeah, you could argue the same with college football. Yeah. I mean, you just look at locker rooms. Right, and, the programs are very different. So fairness is kind of a 
I don't think that's a really good criteria to try to use. All right, world. It's not, the world isn't fair, people. Just know that Bodhi just told. <laughs> I want to talk about ski racing and skiing because I've struggled with the ski thing. Like, my whole family loves to ski. They love, we're here in Aspen now. They love to be here. And like, I, I can't do it. Like the, the boots, we've talked about ski boots. I yeah. hate ski boots. I rented ski boots forever. Have you ever rented ski boots? Yeah. Man, the, it's horrible. It's horrible. So I'm like, okay, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. I'm staying home. And then your family's out there without the dad. And But the ski thing is is like, and I just ski like blues. I don't, I don't ski blacks or like you probably ski. You well, and I, and I can tell you that the skiing is more so than any other sport that I've ever participated in. It's super duper equipment dependent. Like, because obviously this contact point from your body to the equipment is your boots and then the boots go to the skis and the skis go to the snow. So there's these, there's these interfaces all the way through and your bindings even make a huge difference. If you have plates on your skis, it makes a huge difference. The tuning of the skis. I mean, you can take a great ski, you know, one of my World Cup skis or whatever that would be a, a really fun, exciting ski to ski on. You tune it wrong or the way that they tune rental skis, you tune it that way, it's almost unskiable. It's totally unsafe and it's a horrible experience to go up and ski on. So, you know, it, it's it's been a frustration of mine. It's actually partly why I started I have a company, a ski company right. now called Bomber that Bomber. we build, we build really high end skis that are accessible to everybody. Cause you can't, so like any of the skis you'd buy in a shop, I mean, it really doesn't, people are like, what skis should I buy? I'm like, whatever color you like, it doesn't matter. They're all built in China and Czech Republic. Still, They're all I built by the, the same thing about bikes. Half the time. I mean, Fisher's building Rossignols or heads. They're yeah. building them in their factory. It doesn't, they're not hiding anything. It's they're the all same just, thing as they're all trying to build the cheapest stuff and they've been trying to build it cheaper and cheaper for 35 years. And when you try to do that over and over again, you end up with a shitty product because inevitably you cut corners in the wrong places and nobody else really knows because everything else is comparable. So there's no real big difference. And it ends up that people are out there like you saying, Jesus, this, this just isn't that sweet. It's like, I'm not getting a very good experience out of this. And, and then they stop doing it or they don't do it in the first place or they do it and it's not really safe and they take risks with their health and, you know, and that's not worth it either. So, um, you know, for me, obviously having been privileged from a young age with good equipment, I know what the sport can be, and I know how exciting and fun it can be, but it's such a challenge to get people to get their heads wrapped around it because it's an old saying, you know, you don't know what you don't know, which is annoying to hear, but it's a fact. Like, right. you know, you think, oh, fuck, I know what skiing is, and it, here it is, and it's just, it's just not that. I mean, people go out there, even really adamant skiers here in Aspen who spend, you know, 100 days on the snow a year, and they're out there like, oh, this runner. is awesome, and I... You know, I look at their stuff. I'm like, how can that possibly be fun? If I was on your equipment, I would, I would quit. I would stop <laughs> entirely. But when I think about, it, like, first of all, that's the same thing in cycling. Like all the bikes, like whether it's a, a Specialized or a Trek or a Giant or a Canon, they all come off the same factory line, right? They're out of the same factory, yeah. spitting them out. They're just different designs, slightly different design, different color and logo. And and people ask me, oh, what, what bike should I get? I said, look, they're all the same. <laughs> but but what you should do where it does start to make a difference is probably the same in skiing is a wheel set, a component yeah. grupo, um, the fit. Yeah. Like forget the bike, get any bike you want, get, get, get the proper fit. Yeah. Right. And so when I think about it, I'm like, well, this sucks skiing and renting stuff. And, and I'm like, but if I went to, you know, Connecticut and wanted to ride a bike and rented a bike, I would hate it too. Right. I would be like, this is not for me. This thing sucks. Mm -hmm. So it's just, Right. I think, when, I, I think when I'm you do, figuring it out is what I'm trying when to say. You do, when you do get the right equipment, it changes the entire sport. It really yeah. does. Because it, 
without the right equipment, you, you're better off in the lodge. You just are. And yeah. then with the right equipment, and especially conditions also matter. And that's the problem is like cycling, but much more so because on a road or whatever, you know, there's still different conditions and there's different areas where you might ski, but skiing, the conditions can change minute to minute an hour to hour. And then you're on the wrong stuff again. You, you started off the morning on a perfect ski, you're having a great day. And then the, the weather changes and it gets softer or whatever. And then all of a sudden that ski starts to act inappropriately. You got to qualify in the morning. Well, it's even just if you're out skiing, just randomly screwing right. around and it's, it's groomed in the morning, right? And it's kind of soft and you're on a ski that's maybe 85 underfoot and you're just ripping along. It feels great. Smooth and you can make turns. You're not chattering. Then all of a sudden it gets slid off mid-morning when all the skiers are out there. There starts to be some hard patches of kind of chalky man-made snow. And that same ski is going to start chattering like crazy. It just goes every turn and it's horrible feeling and it hurts your feet and makes you tired and makes your back hurt. And And that's just because the equipment wasn't suited to that condition. And that's that's a problem with skiing and it is it's a cumbersome sport that way but if you get the right stuff and you're willing to invest there's times when it's a pretty amazing feeling of just zipping down and you're free and you can just you know you can do whatever you want and it does take a quite an investment but you know the upside is there too but on the race side like i've watched some of this race footage of you uh and some of these crashes which are just (laughs) unbelievable but i mean first of all these mountains like they look like they're 30 percent. i mean they, they are so steep Right, and most people see that, and they're like, "I'm going to go side to side here." You boys just stick it straight down the mountain. Like I can't even, like I can't even believe that somebody would think to do that and and to go what seventy, seventy five miles an hour more. Yeah, we we top out at a hundred. The French kid who a hundred miles an hour. Yeah, just went just over a hundred. And they don't really have there's with no lycra sp- on <laughs> with a sp- with, a with little, not much with a little speed suit. Yeah, it's not it's not safe. There's no question about that. Um, a hundred miles, I was thinking 70, 75, because this one crash for you, the, to me, which was just, it was just super fucked up. Like the, somehow the ski came back around, sliced your leg. There's a photo of it here on NBC sports, oh, yeah, yeah. like this gash. It was so deep and so sh- perfect. It didn't even bleed. No, like all you yeah, saw no, no was, blood. you could see right, there was here, no right blood. inside my leg, it straight was, into the leg. Um, and that, stitches. and that wasn't, that wasn't a fast part of the course. It was just a, that was a super G, which is not the faster event mm-hmm. anyway. And it was not a fast section. It was just a somewhat dark section where you can't really see that well. And I got a little pinched in on a gate and, and that's how quick it happens. I mean, I really didn't make much of a mistake there. I didn't even hook my arm. I actually just got stuck. The panels, they had these weird Jay Lindeberg panels there that they made. And the, the race organizer was like, oh, we'll use them, you know? And even though they weren't standard, they weren't like qualified, but just politically, they were like, oh, we need the logos on there and we'll just use them. Mm-hmm. And uh, they don't, they, it's like scrunching up a t shirt and then trying to tear it. Like normally they should come off the panels if there's that much force. Right. These ones, they just, they just lock on. And as the gate bends, the more it bends, the more it locks on. It's like a Chinese finger trap. And uh, yeah, that's, we know how that works. It, wa- it wasn't really a, uh, yeah, it wasn't really even a, that much of a mistake and ended up, yeah, ending my season that year and caught my hamstring tendon pretty. But it, again, that's crashes are, are, they're so common in that sport. It's amazing that, you know, we lost a French guy. So my, I retired this year for the, like the first actual, I haven't raced for two years, but since that crash, um, hmm. but this year was the year that I actually walked away from it and, you know, let my spot go. Cause I, if I maintain that quota spot, it lets one of the younger guys have a, a spot to race world cup. And this year, and, and everyone was kind of like, oh, you should have raced, you know, you're still fit enough to pull it off. And you know, you could be competitive, which, you know, we're going to get to that, but, we're but then get- I, I walked away, and sure enough, a, a guy I grew up skiing with, a French guy, got killed up in Canada training, and then not even a month later, a German kid got killed um, 
also up there in Canada just just training and and my wife was like hitting the ground or hitting the tree yeah or both hit- so one guy he got he was actually probably dead before he went into the trees but then he went to the trees uh, got went through the bee nets another guy flipped over the bee nets and into the trees um, I mean you're you're going fast and there's trees everywhere it's like and there's rocks and there's cliffs and there's you know people I mean there's just too much out there it's amazing it doesn't happen more often it's only a testament to how hard everybody works to train and be prepared yeah. but it's still it's nuts. I mean, yeah. it's nuts and like i mean I, I guess i mean people think it's nuts to go 75 miles an hour on a bike yeah. right with a with, Which, a with a helmet that you with know, your not, your contact point on the on the yeah, ground you, being, you know uh, back in the day the tires were a lot narrower but even i mean a, a blown tire at 70 a blown front tire at 75 and you're you're toast yeah. and so i guess it's similar but I, I can't wrap my mind around and the thing too is like and tell me if I'm wrong, uh, is it snow or is it ice? Because in a lot of ways, it seems like it's ice. Yeah, it depends. I mean, in Colorado, because of the altitude and the, mm-hmm. the dryness of the conditions, they can't really make it true ice. They, they hose it down. They put a bunch they of water on it. hose it down. It. That's right. Yeah. And it freezes. And it freezes. But be, the, it evaporates so quickly at the high altitudes that it ends up being really hard snow. But then there's places where it's straight ice. There's places where you could skate on it with hockey skates on it. You wouldn't make a mark. I mean, it just... And the skis are that sharp. I mean, obviously they're sharp. When you look at this, you know, for the listener, you got to just go online and check this out. I mean, it's like a knife. Yeah, knife they're, they're they're very sharp. I mean, that, that it barely touched my leg, the back of my leg, and just opened it right up. I mean, it's they're they're not sharp like a knife in terms of like a blade. Right, it's a ninety degree right, angle or so. Still, but the it's edge, even more the impressive. Edge is, the edge is very very yeah, it's perfectly sharp. I mean, you t- even just touching a rock or even a piece of wood or anything when you're going will will wreck the edge and it makes it virtually impossible to ski on those courses because you need that super sharp edge to get the grip in the ice right. and you get scared doing that like if you're going 100 yeah yeah there's you bodie miller gets scared you're like yeah, i'm scared absolutely. and mostly mostly it happens the, the, the fear happens mostly before you start every once in a while you'll get scared in a race but that's usually a matter of somewhat losing focus or being distracted by a mistake that you made or a, a perfect situation that comes around and you kind of you you lose focus because the fear generally is more at that point. Once you're actually in the course, things are happening so quickly that you're more it's more functionally involved. You're always even if you're making a mistake or crashing, you're still trying to figure out how to make it the least uh detrimental that you right, can. Right. But before the races, there's always, always fear involved. Just because the consequences of what you're about to do are so severe. It's probably the same as a descent in in cycling where That's you right. know there's a gnarly descent. You know to make up time on everybody else, you have to take risk. It's just the nature of it. There's 70 other guys out there who are all going to be trying to win a race. Right. So you kind of inherently know you're going to be on the edge and usually past the edge in a lot of different situations. And hopefully it works. And sometimes it's not going to work. And when yeah. it doesn't work, the consequences in ski racing are pretty severe. I guess that, I mean, that's right. I mean, I, I was always scared and we would have these moments like in cycling, you're either scared when you're fighting for position, like, like, like the spring classics, for example, you have to be at the front, right? So every, obviously if you have to be at the front, then everybody wants to be at the front. So the battle for position is, is so gnarly and like, to me, like so scary, but I've never had that conversation with other guys. We have done descents, like, you know, going 70 in the rain downhill with yeah. 200 guys. Yeah. I was completely scared shitless and i would get to the bottom and you find some english-speaking guy and i was like dude that was so like were you scared mm-hmm. like i like <laughs> asked them and they were like oh my god i was so scared and like okay i wasn't the only but as you're doing it i'm like i'm the only guy who's scared here but they're all scared yeah yeah world cup's the same way and the guys who you know there's a certain amount of posturing and it's also you know you're playing mental games with yourself because i've watched guys straight walk away from the start i mean be at the start prepared to race pack up their shit back on the gondola 
download. Come on. Done. Yeah. I mean, they're scared. Yeah. They're just, yeah. You get to a point where sometimes the mental picture, you want to try to visualize something good happening and all you're stuck on is something real bad happening in your head. And you can't kick out of a start gate when all you see is yourself cartwheeling into the fence or through the fence into the trees. And yeah, once that gets in your head, some of the guys are smart enough to walk away. Some guys just keep trying to pull through and go. And usually that's when they end up cartwheeling into the fence. So, I mean, it was, it was a long ways into my career before I started realizing that like, that was something that I was dealing with all the time. I was just dealing with it in a different way than a lot of guys Hes- were. Yeah. What is it? In, in hesitation equals devastation. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, but the start ramp, man, like when I, like if you watch the footage, it is just, it's straight down. I guess it has to be because you got to get up to 100 sooner than later. And the skis don't work when you're going slow. Yeah, oh, there you know, go. The, there two, you go. the 218 downhill skis, they're, they, they only work when you start going. You know, 50 or 60 is about as slow as you can go and have them work at all. And then, yeah. you know, they work better the faster you go. So when you watch these crap, like, and you never, I don't follow skiing that closely, but if you follow football or follow hockey or, I mean, it, you know, all they talk about is, is head injuries and concussions. But if you watch, like the crash that, you, that I watched of you, they talked about you slicing your leg. But, dude, you, you hit your head hard. Like, as that thing came back around and you're just ragdoll and, like, you hit your head so hard. Like, that must happen. It happens all the time. I mean, concussions must be, but you never hear about it in skiing. Yeah. At least that I, I know and of. Right. As of now, I mean, it is, it's a very, it's a strange, it's a strange thing. Cause I can, I've been around skiing for a long time and I've watched a ton of crashes and I've watched, and you honestly, it's almost like maybe from a somewhat psychedelic philosophical position, you might say that like people, have made the concussion issue more prevalent and then you notice it more and then the consequences are more. It's like a self-fulfilling prophecy because sure you see guys get concussed in football, but they're going running speed. So they're hitting each other at running speed. Things like, you know, cycling or mountain biking where you're going, you know, 10 times that fast and the impacts are that much more severe skiing being one of them. You're hitting ice and you're going, you know, all, all different speeds, but you know, really, really fast and able to, and we basically, I mean, I can count the number of times I've seen a concussed person or like even somebody who really felt like they had a concussion, not that they were ignoring it on purpose, but just like where they had the really, you know, their cuckoo and they can't right. remember shit, right. and headaches and all that. I mean, it just doesn't happen. It's been, I mean, this is hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of crashes that I've seen where people have just knocked their heads like you wouldn't believe but you don't and they're okay. Many. And it's almost because we don't bring it up and because we don't think about it, we don't talk about it. It's like, it doesn't exist. And I, at some point I'm sure it's going to come around to skiing because it's an obvious target for, you know, yeah. and, and I, I support all the research and I support all the safety measures, but at the same time, it's like, I don't like the direction that some of these sports are going in. And I don't think the fans do. I don't think, you know, it's, it's hard to manage the change that is implied by trying to make things safer when the sport is inherently really not safe. It's like, how do you take a sport like yeah. ski racing that's based around super risk and, and death defying, you know, right. positions and make it safe. It's well, like, that's, yeah, that's a football. The argument is, is that, you know, the, uh, you know, don't let them play tackle until later in life or, or, uh, make certain hits illegal or, or make practices, you know, touch football or what, you know, so, but skiing, I mean, if, if, unless you're going to make the skis so that they can only go, or you guys just ski down blues where you're going 30 <laughs> exactly. instead of a hundred. Exactly. I mean, what are you going to do? Like, you, make you, us be in those sumo suits that are all, you know, padded up in airbags yeah. and everything. And there just, you go. It just takes everything away from the sport. So it is, it's a, it's a really tough, it's a tough, uh, conundrum, but you know, the reality is, like I said, it's, it hasn't been a big issue. I, I'm amazed that more people aren't killed skiing or ski racing. I mean, every year there's people, people die here every year, you know, yeah. just 
mishaps where they slide in the trees or something. But in ski racing, with the speeds and the risk that people are taking, I mean, that's just people out trying to have a good day and something goes a little bit wrong. You know, when you're really trying to push, you know, well past the comfort zone and into, you know, areas of, of severe risk, it's amazing it doesn't happen more often. But as I said, I'm, I'm glad that it doesn't. Yeah, like Michael Schumacher. I mean, look. Yeah. Yeah, just, just cruising the awful, along. Awful story. Yeah. Nobody even, you don't even hear about that story anymore. He was like the greatest of all time. You yeah. Know, like freak accident with his son was talking afterwards. Yeah. And then bam. Yeah. The guys. And and nothing. I mean, going going virtually nowhere. Just, right. You know, unlucky. Jeez. And so when you're let me just get this straight. So these runs, because I, I am really an idiot when it comes to ski racing. Like these are like two minutes, a minute. How long is the the, the long ones are two minutes and thirty seconds? Two thirty. So and that's... then average for the downhills are like two minutes, and then it kind of goes super G's are minute thirty average, probably minute a little bit more, and then GS is shorter but two runs, like one in the morning, one in the yeah. afternoon, their combined time, and then yeah. slalom's the same thing, and that's the really quick. So what's so hard about that? Is it is it the legs? Is it like like you know like a wall sit, like a Roman chair, like where you sit on the wall, or your legs really start to? Is that... Yeah, and it's different in different in different gotcha. events, but in downhill, it's definitely the legs. Like on the long runs, there's a there's a race in Veng, in Vengen in Switzerland um, called the the Laberhorn, and that's that's our longest run. And you go through this, you go under a train. There's it's all trains up there in the Swiss Alps. Mm-hmm. You. you park your car down below you take a train up to the village and that's where you operate out of and then the train takes you up to the top of the bottom of the lifts or whatever and uh there's a part where you actually the downhill course goes under this train tunnel the train goes over it and like that's you still have a minute left so that's only a minute and 30 seconds into that run and already guys are like fully stumping out like you know lactic acids up in like 13 already and 13 starts to be that point where you really lose some function. You can still power through, but you have a minute left, and the last 10 seconds is is some of the hardest. There's two turns that are just off camber, really dark, and super high speed, you know, 70, 75, 80, and, and you're so, trying to make corrections when your legs are completely shot. That's yeah, where the danger is. Yes. Yeah, so, so for the listener, that 13, you're talking about millimoles. millimoles so that's, yeah. yeah, that's, you know, that's, uh, we, we did a lot of lactate testing, obviously, and, you know, the key for us was always where the lactate threshold was, where you right. know that you could, Keep Once going. you got above that, right. you know, you're you're on the clock. And right. Below that, you're supposed to be able to do that for, you know, just below it. You, you wanted to be, you know, push your watts as high as you could and up to the threshold. And so for 13 millimoles, I mean, four is typically right. considered Where that threshold is, is the threshold. Generally. And so anything above that, like I said, you're on the clock, 13. I mean, you're tasting lactate. Yeah, yeah. You start, that's where guys, you know, and, and we've had, we the numbers go really high because you're so used to it. I mean, we're, that's our, that's our. It's our challenge is that you go, but you have tons of time afterwards. I mean, these are one run a day things. So, right. you know, then we go on, get on a bike and spin, try to get the lactic acid out and then recover. And, and, but, you know, when we do it, some days we train, you know, in five or six, seven runs where the lactic acid is not quite as high, but you're still pushing it all the time. So your body gets really good at tolerating that. But, you know, when it goes up to, you know, 14, 15, you start, you know, you throw up, you get real sick, you start yeah. feeling horrible afterwards. And that's normal at the bottom of World Cup runs. I mean, you know, if you're not if you're not on the podium, there's a there's a time where you're pretty bummed out because you feel horrible and you'd lost. Right. <laughs> Seems like when and you, you risk your life and you risk your life yeah, and you don't cool. get you don't get anything for it. Wow. Are you done racing? Yeah, yeah, I am. I'm, I'm, I'm going to do. I do lots of things. This, like this. is a great a- place Ajax, to tell the world Cap. that you're that you're going to come back. <laughs> I mean, the head <laughs> thing. The we, had, we had the dispute with head. That's going to time out. Maybe it's already timed out. You're watching. You're going to commentate on TV. I know you're sitting there going, "All right, let's do this again." People are telling you you can do it again. No, that's the perfect scenario. Is when you get to go to the Olympics and and 
tell people how easily you'd be winning and how awesome you'd yeah, how be on that suck? course. And I, I'd be yeah. kicking these guys' asses right. left and right. Don't, please don't do that. <laughs> and then, but luckily, I don't have to because I'm behind the other side of the fence and on the microphone. Um, no, I don't. I don't do that. But actually, ski racing is that way. I mean. I was a very successful professional ski racer, and I won less than ten percent of the races I was in, mm. and uh, and that's a that's a great number. And so that means ninety percent of the time I was either getting my ass kicked by one or more people, or ending up in the fence. So yeah. it's a pretty humbling sport. You don't you don't feel that that um, ready to go poking fun at anybody who's yeah. still doing it at that point. You're just so we're done. You're, you're not going to tell us all that you're coming back. No, no, I'm forty. I'm ready to ready to hang him up. Yeah. Uh, comebacks are a bad idea. I can tell you that from experience. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I I already did a couple, so I I know firsthand that they're a bad idea. Yeah. But um, but and, yeah, especially in this sport. And you and I read it when NBC announced that you were going to commentate for the Olympics. You know, you were you know that's a fine line, right? A lot of these guys are your friends, or you raced with, or even if they're not, you know, uh, Americans, guys from all over the world. Where you've got a, I had the same experience. Like last summer. I did a podcast, the spinoff of this podcast, where I talked about the tour. And so with the great thing is that I could say whatever I wanted, right? And, and it might be different if you're on NBC. There you can't say whatever you want, but you got to call it the way you see it, even if it's a, you know, a good friend of yours that you raced with or a, or a kid you work with or a kid you help out. You got to, if they screw up, you got to say they screwed up. Yeah, and it's, like I said, the ski racing is, it'd be one thing if it was, you know, swimming or something like that where I felt like, you know, there was there was a real even playing field, but there's so much going on in skiing that you do see mistakes and you see stupid mistakes. But even though you can call those out, it's really easy to be gentle on the guys in a way that's still very real and authentic. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, like I said, I've been there. I know I've I made you know, like I said, ninety percent of my races, I was getting my ass beat, and I was very successful. So for these guys who are, you know, trying to find their way, or young guys trying to come up, it's like it's easy to be impressed with everything they're doing, just because, like I said going out of the start gate on some of these races mm -hmm. is a challenge enough. And, uh, you know, it's, it's not a, it's not like hopping in the pool or it's, you know, in some cases, um, you know, even stepping out on the field or whatever, where, you know, this is every single time is like, it's pretty risky and it's gotta be scary. And they're, they're pushing it every single time. It's like yeah. when I now being, you know, retired and, and out of it, it's, it's so not appealing. I think there's a certain switch that goes off in your head too, where like I'd been preparing myself to be able to do that for a long time. And I got used to tolerating that risk. And now it's just, you know, with the kids and all that, it just seems yeah. like such a ridiculous risk to take for Having me. kids. Yeah. Right. Now you see it all the time with, in, in cycling with sprinters, right? You know, the best sprinters in the world are the best when they don't have kids. So they have the first kid, you see them, they touch the brakes, Yeah. you know, quicker than they used to. And then they have a second kid <laughs> and, and then they're all over the break. The third kid, then they retire. They're like, they just won't, yeah. they won't go there. They don't yeah. have the, they're in the back of their head. They're like, wait, I want to, I got to like, I want to pick up my kid tonight. Yeah. Like, and, yeah. and it, it just, it, you know, that's when, yeah. You that's gotta, why they call it a young man's sport. It really, you know, it's, it's not a, you know, people, there are the anomalies, the exceptions, to the rule, but in general, it's, it's, it's like clockwork. As soon as kids come into the picture, you're like, whoa, I got to, I gotta start paying attention a little bit. You don't feel, you know, quite as wide open throttle, and that that makes a difference in a sport like skiing. Wasn't Lindsey Vaughn? That this is totally random. It has nothing to do with your kids or my kids, but I think I read this. Wasn't Lindsey Vaughn wanting to ski against the men? Did I read that? Yeah, but I think it's it's been going on for. She brought it up years and years ago, and every once in a while we'll train with the girls, right? So we'll train, but like in a place like Copper, you know, in in Colorado yeah. here, and 
it's just the easiest thing. I mean, there's no way to make up any time. It, it's you're just tucking. You go out of the start and you're just and you're Point tucking. And you just tuck and you kind of roll along a little bit. And she's got great touch. You know, she's not a little girl and she's got fast skis and she she's smooth. She's good aerodynamics and she'll be right there. You know, she'll be close and she'll beat some of the some of the guys, some of the younger guys who have crappy skis. And Lindsay had a bunch of my skis, which were the fastest in the world after I um first switched off head in like oh nine uh, or when I first retired. And um and she'd be in touch and she'd be like, Oh, I want to race against the guys. And they raced in Lake Louise and she's killed it up there. She's won that race a bunch of times and we raced the same hill. They set it differently and our speeds are different and all that, but she that was more or less where it came up. But then she's brought it up in other places too. I, I thought I read it recently. Yeah, she brought it up again and you know, it, it's I, I've talked to her about it and I mean I don't know if she does it for publicity or if she actually is serious about it, but it, it would not be a good idea for any in any way <laughs> because she would get killed time-wise but she would also put herself at crazy risk which she's already i mean she's racing on the girls courses and still has a lot of risk i mean she's still getting hurt and she's yeah. recovering from injuries all the time and she's really trying to manage her body if she tried to go down kitsville or bormio or vengen i mean she's a great skier and i think she's you know she's either the best or one of the best we've ever seen men or women uh, on the sport and she would just be in the fence so quickly it would be it'd be okay painful. so Lindsay, this is a bad idea <laughs> bodie bodie just says don't do it um but you know the crazy thing too about her just last thing on her is like because i read the, like i get my ski news from the newspaper the new york times or the austin paper or whatever it's like one day you read that she's crashed and she's injured and then the next day you read that she won or got silver and i'm like wait a minute i thought she's injured like maybe because they're different disciplines or she can i don't manage the injury i don't she's she's a badass yeah she's been she's been i mean to come back from what she's come back to and still be still be in there trying to win is like i said it's it's impressive yeah so you grow up literally without electricity or, or running water in the, in the beginning yeah i mean i was my parents were were old school like my dad was in medical school his older brothers were doctors his father was a doctor and he was being fed into the machine of you know that and he was in his third year medical school and he just he got pissed off because there was some political stuff with one of his professors and he dropped out and married my mom and moved up into the woods on our property where the, that my mom's parents owned um you know 400 acres in new hampshire of just woods and they they found this cool spot up by a river and and all their their hippie friends you know got together and built a cabin you know they just cut down the trees and made a cabin out of the trees they cut down and and uh that was i was born in that in that house i mean there my you know my dad mom was because a midwife, right? yeah my mom was a midwife yeah. but also my dad being through medical school was pretty capable um so we were all delivered at home and till i was eight uh or so i was homeschooled and just yeah all i did was play in the woods and you know play tennis all too. summer like you had a brother your brother had this name like it's on wikipedia like i was like whoa yeah like four or five my, names, my two only... younger siblings ha have had crazy names and uh, mine is pretty straightforward, but um, I think as it went down, I think it was really we each got to pick a name for the for them. So it was like it just kept getting longer and longer the more you get to pick a name yeah. for your sibling. Yeah. <laughs> All right. What'd you pick? I think mine was Bungo Wind Rushing, which is like the Bungo is a Indian name for the wind that blows through there. It's uh -huh. kind of like I mean a lot of places have special wind. This wind howls; it like knocks trees down and stuff. It stays north of the mountains. The Indians call it the bungo, so that was, and it blew on the day my little sister was born, and I was only two, uh, or yeah, two and a half. So I think that was like one of the only things I knew. So, bungo. I, so she had some seriously crazy hippie names. That wind, wind will drive you crazy. Like I think it's proven that like the 
If uh, it blows a lot, you go Looney Tunes. Yeah, the, yeah. the highest suicide rates, at least in this country, are, are in the windiest cities, like these remote, windy places where it's just always windy, and, and people just go nuts. Yeah. I hate wind, man. I hate wind for riding bikes, and I hate, <laughs> I hate wind. The two it things sucks I love for to do. Too. It's okay, the worst. Well, there you go. I didn't even. I mean, I never would have thought about that. But like riding bikes and playing golf, the wind is like the worst. And like this is the two things I do. Yep. Dude. So you're, but you didn't stay there, right? You went off to boarding school, and and yeah, I, I heard well, this. So my mom and dad separated pretty uh-huh. when I was six. We lived up there for another two years, and my mom was just a total badass like hippie you know dad leaves yeah he went to tennessee to work um try to make some money and uh they were separated at that point and so my mom lived up there with four kids only wood burning stove you know walking in because you couldn't drive a car up there in the winter so you're pulling a sled with you know four kids two of them i mean we're all small at that time um she's like yeah i'm out yeah she was like this is crazy i can't do this anymore so then we moved down into my grandmother's old house and she moved to a new house um and she was fighting cancer at the time and and uh so then we started going to school because it was just too much on everybody so my older sister and i and and my little sister all went to the same little you know tiny little new hampshire school Mm -hmm. and i was there for into the beginning of high school eighth grade and then we sort of i was pushing pretty hard i think already at that point i was starting to being the man of the house after my dad left i kind of had more responsibility and was kind of and i also just never felt I wasn't the same as my siblings at all. I, I knew I wasn't going to stay in New Hampshire. And everybody there normally is just like, New Hampshire is what it is. You just you get your job or you work out, you do landscaping or do whatever it is. And you maple, just, maple syrup. And, and you live, you yeah. live your little, and I was like, even at that age, I kind of knew that I wasn't, that wasn't my program. So, you know, when I was 14, 13, I started, I went to boarding school, um, you know, and was pretty, you know, again, those are, those are, it's, it's strange to think of it now because it was like, those were such, I had to push hard to do it. Like it wasn't like somebody was making me go, but I went, I was like leaving all my friends, leaving my comfort zone where I was like kind of the big fish in a small pond and going to a boarding school where I was like the worst kid there. And I was poor and I was living in a, you know, day student's house so I could afford it. You know, I was working all summer to pay for it. It was like, I mean, to think of it now, like, I don't know if my kids are going to have that kind of, I mean, you know, I don't know what it was, stubbornness or or drive or whatever. And I was like, I was grinding grinding all summer building tennis courts to pay for my ski racing in the winter. It was like, I mean, I guess kids are different now. Maybe we lived in a different time, but like, yeah. You skied yesterday. We have some really dear friends here in Aspen, Adam and Mel Lewis, Melanie Mm -hmm. Lewis, and they must've bought it as part of the Ajax auction or something, but they're super rad. And so she was telling me, I saw her last night at this other thing. Um, She was telling me, you were telling stories yesterday about going to boarding school and, and, you, maybe you were goofing off or something, but the school was like, okay, you, you kind of suck at skiing. You need to, you need to switch to snowboarding. And for you, at least according to Mel was like, that was like, all right. Yeah. I mean, I'd always, I'd always read, I'd always been, um, pretty, pretty gifted and in, in things like I wasn't, school was so easy. It was a really pretty basic public school. So it wasn't hard. I never even brought my books home. I didn't have to do homework. I'd just do it in school. And I never got A's, but I was always like B's and, you know, I never was even close to getting in trouble for stuff. I did well on tests and I was good at different sports. I was kind of the leader on our sports teams through high school. And, and, uh, when I went up there, like I said, all of a sudden I was, I was out of my own and I didn't have any, you know, I was like meeting new friends. I was the littlest kid in the school and, um, and I was lazy and I was, I was, uh, I just didn't, I didn't know how, what drive was at that point. And I, I think mentally I was ready for it, but 
And so they had an intervention straight up, sat me down with, you know, seven or eight people all circled around me in an office and my advisor and my coaches and the dean, the headmaster of the school. And, and they basically laid into me like, you suck. You're, you're lazy. You're just coasting along in a bubble. Like something's going to automatically happen. You got to get your shit together. And at the time it was like, you know, immediately I clammed up and was like, you know, fighting back tears, but I was like, you know, screw these people. They don't know, you know, and it's not, what do they care anyway? It's like, I'm, once I'm out of here, they're just going to have new kids come through school right. and it, it is what it is. It's yeah. Screw them. But then after, you know, I had time to digest it and kind of, um, and that was where they said, look, you're not coming back next year because we're giving you financial aid that allows you to come here and we're not going to let you back unless you switch to snowboarding because they had a snowboard team and I was better at snowboarding than I was at skiing at that time. And, uh, and again, it was, if they hadn't said anything, I probably would have considered it. But the fact that they were telling me I had to, otherwise I wasn't going to be allowed back, um, just pissed me off and pushed my buttons the wrong way. And I just, you know, dug my heels in and even my uncle was like, yeah, you should switch, you know? And I don't know if he was doing it intentionally cause he knew it would piss me off. But, um, from that point forward, I was much more focused and like determined I mean, to, looking to back shut him up. Yeah. That has to be one of the most pivotal yeah. moments of your life, right? Yeah. That, one of that, them. Yeah. That, and there was a whole series of those type of things that happen. happened all through that yeah. time that were like that. One of my coaches the year before I went to boarding school, a coach had me disqualified from a race because I would lay into him all the time. I wouldn't listen to him. I'd blow off training because I thought he was he was a garbage coach. And he, <laughs> in hindsight, he was. But I was 12 years old and had no business, you know, telling him that yeah. to his face and having. I hope he's not him. listening. <laughs> Walter Brown. You oh know, no! You know, calling him out. You know who you By are. Name. Um. But uh. And and I he disqualified me from a race and had me disqualified for you know so I, I thought I was in he had me disqualified after the race had happened so me and everybody else thought I'd qualified for the Junior Olympics they go to announce the team I'm not on it we go back and research turns out he'd called the guy after the race was over and said oh he admitted that he missed a gate you should disqualify him and and that was another one where to to go from a young kid of like your whole season goes to the Junior Olympics at the end of it yeah. and you're you're robbed by some petulant adult it was like it was the most. It was the most, um, you know, it, it was the worst feeling I'd had at that point being, you know, bullied on and like just had no power, no control. And I was, and that was, you know, and so then I had, I had these series of things like that for three years in a row that were pretty much like, I would say defined the direction that I took for the rest of my, you know, my life basically. Yeah, and, and they were, and they were shitty things. They were, each one of them was negative, which is strange because I'm more of a person who believes like encouragement and positivity helps, but there's no denying that those challenges or you know, facing adversity that way or really dealing with crappy situations a lot of times has a more impactful, sure. um, you know, role in people's lives or decisions. You know, yeah, just, that's, that's what shaped you as the, as an athlete and as a, as a, as a dude, right? I mean, some of those things don't happen. You might've been sitting on your ass, lazy and yep. drinking beer, <laughs> making, where's dad? Dad ever come around? Yeah. He, I mean, he's, and he's great. We, we've always had a great relationship. Him and my mom never fought. They were right. just like, they, they did it like hippies would. Oh, I just I don't really love you as much anymore. Okay, let's be friends then, and they just leave. You know, it's it's strange the way that generation from the '60s work. Yeah. They just I've never seen them fight. They're still good friends. They they talk all the time. They live right next to each other now. My dad moved back with um, a woman that he's been now with for 33 years, um, and he lives right down the road from us. And they mm -hmm. they work. My dad worked at our tennis camp forever and helped out. And so he he's been a big part of my life. Just not because he's so passive, and we're we're sort of different. In, in certain ways, um, you know, he hasn't really been as active uh, in my sports career, but it's definitely been, um, you know, he's, he's been a great role model for me cool. as well. Let's talk about horse racing. 
because I don't, I don't understand this obsession that you have with horses and horse racing and the Kentucky Derby. You haven't missed a Kentucky Derby since nineteen. Well, I missed one two years ago. You did, yeah, because my well, this kid, article my kid. Was, was wrong. Well, well, exactly, but it wasn't until that point I had been to a bunch of them in a row, and then my son was going to be born two years ago uh, in May, and we were like. Morgan was like, oh, we should still go. You know, my wife was like, we should go, and I'll just be huge pregnant there. And, like, there's cute dresses for super pregnant ladies and whatnot. Yeah. And I was like, I was like, no way, because if he's born, like, on Derby Day, we're going to have to name him, like, the winning horse or something. Yeah. And um, so we ended up skipping and staying home. And uh, and it was, you know, it was a streak I didn't give a, give a shit about. But it was uh, – the sport has always been – in my grandfather used to go to the track down in southern New Hampshire and, and you know, make bets on the yeah. horses. And I grew up around animals. So that's so. the – I don't know that that's where it is. I think it's just really similar to ski racing. There's so much that has, you know, as you probably know, you built, you spend your whole life in a sport, you get all these really weird skills, but they're really generally only applicable to that sport. Right. Sometimes like I can handicap crazy because I'm used to in ski racing, you have these things, penalties, like it's how you decide your points for, there's a FIS system and a USSA system. USSA is the nationwide in America. And then FIS is worldwide. And you have to rank yourself against all the other FIS athletes worldwide. So you have to see how a race in Vermont compares to the race in Colorado versus a race in Switzerland. And the system is based on how many good guys there are in that race, how many of the good guys finish in the top 10, and the spread of how far those guys who finish in the top 10 are off the winner. It's like a handicap. And, and, right. It's a handicapping mm -hmm. system. And it's based on the slope of the hill and how many gates there were and all this different stuff. So it's really, it's calculus or, or something like that. But we learned how to do it when we were eight years old because... It, we cared about it. It wasn't, we didn't think of it as math. We were just figuring out how we ranked against everybody else. And that same system works for handicapping horses. It's like analyzing a track here, knowing how fast a horse is likely to run in one position or another and what their style is. And so when I first started getting into horse racing, um, it was more luck. Visa had the Visa Triple Crown and they brought me to, to the Derby. And, um, and I watched it and it was just, it was awesome. It was exciting. It was same thing as skiing. It was really objective. There was no judging. It was just start to finish. It was raw. The horses all like to run. That's what their nature is. They have a great time doing it and they, you know, they bust ass and it's risky. They, they know they're risking their lives. Sure. It's, it's sketchy. And, and the jockeys risk their And life. the jockeys do as well. It's, you're in a group of horses like that. Yeah. It's, there's huge risk. So, um, there was just a lot of appeal like to it. Pounds, you know, like yeah, they're little... tiny little wisp of guys and they, yeah, they get stomped on and rolled over on and yeah, they're crazy. I mean, they're, and those are, they're athletes too. I mean, it's, it's not an easy thing to do. Um, but to get in the game, I mean, horses are not cheap. The, you know, the, the, you know, I mean, I guess if you want to get in the game, if you had endless amounts of money, you want to get in the game, you buy some horses, you buy a stable or a farm or whatever. And you like go down there and, you know, clap and cheer and oh, we won. Like it's, Right. It's a, it's a, in general, it's it's the reason they call it the sport of kings is because it, you need to be a king basically yeah. to, to make it happen. I mean, but my system was based on it was the same. I've done it a bunch of times where I'm generally like, okay, I'm not not interested in a sport because of these hurdles or because of this whatever. And then sometimes you you kind of can flip it around in your head and be like, actually, that's the reason I I would be involved in it. And in this case, it was the sport was so inaccessible and it was really, I think they're doing a crappy job. They're not really training the horses. They're more or less just babysitting them. There's been this really weird trend to try to keep them from getting hurt, but all they're doing is getting them hurt more. And they aren't, they don't use sports science at all. They don't use anything. And the, the times are, are still holding up from secretariat's era. Um, and people would say, oh, maybe that, you know, they were on different drugs at that time or whatever, maybe. But the point is in, in human sport, 
sports science has moved the needle a lot. I mean, moving the needle 10, 15% in the human world is totally doable, you know, from somebody who's not trained at all right. to, to being very well trained. Um, and so some, that's in, your goal. In some it, cases, it's, it's more than that. In this, in this sport, you can buy, I can, you and I could go buy a horse for five, five grand tomorrow who is within 5% of American Pharaoh right now. And American Pharaoh is a $50 million horse, you know, and then we'll probably make, you know, the Tappet, Tappet is the top stallion right now in the country. He's $300,000 per live foal. So per cover, and he'll book out um, in, in the breeding wait, shed. This is all Greek to me. Per so in the breeding shed, right? So every mare that he's bred to who has a baby. So 300 grand is for him 300 to have grand. sex with a, with yep. a girl horse. Per, per bang, 300 grand. This guy's got the, I mean, what a life. And and he'll, he'll book out 100, 160 per year. So he's doing $60 million a year wow. in the door and he'll breed for, he'll breed for 15 years. So, I mean, horses like that can bring you almost a billion dollars, one horse just breeding. So we need to go buy so the breeding, the breeding is where it happens, but you get, you get there from a various, you know, sort of way. So I, I ended up the way that I did it was always focused on that because then if you get a horse that's breeding well and that's, that's pr bringing in significant money, then you fund your racing operation right. based on your budget from your breeding operation. And that's the only place you go to like a place like Windstar or Coolmore. I mean, they have gold statues and they, I mean, every, it's like, right. those are the places that are printing the money. It's, but are it, we, I mean, you, you got horses that are going to be, are these like horses that you take down to the local track or are these like Kentucky Derby horses? Well, I, I, think I have, I have both. That's the point in, in horse racing. And it's partly, you could compare it a little bit to like, to like NASCAR, right. Or, or formula one where there's, so, there's so close together. All these horses are so inbred and they're so that the difference between a $5,000 claiming horse that we could get tomorrow and American Pharaoh is statistically is more like 5%. I mean, at a minute 40 seconds, which is about a mile and a 16th, American Pharaoh might run a 140, 100 seconds. And the horse that I have right now in my barn that I bought for 15 grand or 20 grand can go 144, 143. So you're talking about 3% difference statistically. And if and that's we're not doing anything. I mean, literally the, the training routine right now for thoroughbred horses, and this is basically uniform across the country. There's small deviations. Like D-Wayne, Lucas, all these All dudes. those guys. Yep. They're basically, they'll take a horse out of the stall where it stands 23 and a half hours a day. They walk it around a thing for 10 minutes just with somebody on the halter just walking it. They'll saddle it up. A guy gets on. He walks it out to the track. It runs around the track one time real slow, just kind of cruising back in the stall. 23 hours in the stall, you know, a hot walk maybe around what, that, that thing. That was their training day? That's, the whole, that's, that's, a, that's a normal day. Then once every seven to 10 days, it comes out, does virtually the same thing, does a little warm-up lap, and then breezes normally five furlongs, which is less than three-quarters of a mile, at slightly lower than race speed. Hmm. So, you know, 80%, 90%, something like that, 80%. Breezes, three, you know, up to maybe Bob is one of the guys who goes a little longer. He might go six furlongs, which is three-quarters of a mile, or maybe a seven furlongs. So basically, their training consists of Virtually nothing, a slight warm up seven days in a row or six days in a row. And then one time where they go slower than race speed and significantly shorter distance than races would be, hmm. and then back in their stall. And then once every month, they go out and they do basically no warm up and go blasting out and go 100% for a longer distance. So they go faster speed than they ever train and longer distance than they ever train. And they wonder how come they're hurting horses. Because when this, with this horse a couple of years ago won the Triple Crown, like and it happens with you know these horses that are about to win the triple crown like they the owner and the trainer and the commentators not that i watch a lot of horse racing like the kentucky derby is like the tour de france like it's the only thing idiots right. like me know so yep. but they're all talking about 
you know, you, you get to the third, you know, like, peg of the triple yeah. crown, and they're talking about how tired the horse was. Well, tired, you know, the first two races. I'm like, wait, that <laughs> the Kentucky Derby was like, wasn't that like a month ago? Like, how are you tired? Yeah, like especially a horse that's meant to. If you put it in nature, it's meant to do interval training basically yeah. all day, every day. Okay, so it'll run and then eat some grass, and then run hard and eat some grass, yeah. and run hard and eat some grass. That's all they do. They're a prey animal. So whatever's being chasing them, they have to run it away from it. They don't have a fight mechanism, so they just run. And these guys are, like I said, they're they're running them once a month, and they're acting like that's going to fatigue them so much. And they're going one bout of like slow speeds. It just doesn't, it, you're exactly right. That was why I ended up wanting to get involved, because I said, there's just no way that these animals are even close to their peak fitness or peak ability when this is their routine. I mean, even if they are absolute physical specimens, which they are, right. you know, they and, like they, and they have all these these amazing adaptations to avoid prey, which is really what we're trying to stimulate them to do is run as fast as they can. But there just has to be much more there. And the sport is incredibly well-funded. I mean, there's, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars well, of prize money all over the place. And the breeding operation is is really, it's Because I watched the, the interview you did, you did uh, with Graham Benzinger where they, they showed you have a, like a... Uh, a treadmill for the horse you have a hyperbaric chamber you have uh this 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 system where uh mold and and like uh, allergies and, are taken and, out right. of the air and, filtration and, and that's like the horse just let's just start with the horse treadmill right you, no other dudes have horse treadmills well in south africa uh michael de who's the best trainer there poor, uh uses them guy. uses poor, them quite a, quite a bit I grew up with that yeah. name um, and I think they use them in, in, in actually in Scandinavia, it changed the, the standard bread industry. The guys came in there with, with treadmills and just, and did interval training and just absolutely blew everybody else away. I, I would think with that kind of money on the line, you, you, you would have all of these things at your disposal, just like a, a skier or a cyclist or a marathoner or a, a, the New England Patriots. I mean, I would think yeah. you'd have all that. Like, that's right. And so that, the problem is that, that the wealthy people are already established, right? Mm-hmm. So they, they already have their top trainers and all things being equal, buying a better horse works, right? I mean, if, if all things, if you're not training, if everyone's doing the same thing, which is what's happening, everyone's doing the same thing, then the better horses win. So they, the more money that you spend on a horse, the trainers get paid 10% on the purchase price and 10% of prize money and 10% of the sale price. So they want, it's kind of weird because they're motivated to have the person buy a more expensive horse or pay more for the same horse if they wanted to. So, you know, for me, I make an extra, an extra, you know, hundred grand if I get you to pay two million instead of one million for a horse. So it's like the whole system is kind of, it's kind of upside down a little bit. You'd think it would be better to motivate them to save you money and buy good horses, but it's the opposite. So, you know, as it stands now, the the processes that make the difference aren't big enough to over to overcome the, the need to buy the best horses to buy those million and a half two million dollar horses there's no guarantee if you pay the 300 grand stud fee that there's no guarantee that you're gonna absolutely have a not no it's there. it's still a very low percentage right, that, because if he's if he's having that many kids he's having a ton right he's having a lot of kids i mean they're not obviously only one horse wins one per year exactly wins the derby or you know and it's statistically it's it's a very difficult sport that way because i mean of the forty thousand or so that you know babies that are born each year I think only like less than a thousand ever win mm. a race of any sort. Yeah. So it's, it's like, and you know, of that, it's like 1% of that win a stakes race. So it, it's really a, 
It's not statistically. It's so not. So are, a good are sport. these horses? Are your horses going to be in the Kentucky Derby? Like the one one we're, horse we're, race that I, I mean, what's the other one? The the Preakness and then the and then the Belmont. The Belmont. I mean, yeah. And then the Breeders' Cup is like Breeders' Cup is huge. It's starting that. to actually get I've some traction where the the prize money is much bigger for the for the Breeders' Cup, but the prestige is okay, higher. So for are the we going to see you on TV there? I mean, are are you yeah, racing we, down at the like the 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 Maryland Downs? We do we do both. I mean, yeah. it, we it's always kind of a. It's a mix, right? So you try to you try to get your your horses into races they can win, um, and then as they win, or as you see how good they are, because again, nobody really knows how good they are until they're in a race, because they're all so close. When they train, that training that I talked about, where they go five furlongs, the best horses in the world do the exact same times as the worst horses. I mean, they all run eighty percent of race speed. They're they're all doing the same thing. So you can't tell anything from training unless you're a real horseman, in which case you're really doing it with your eyes. Not you're not looking at the time or the speed you're just looking at a move and you say that horse looks like it can move really easy it looks smooth that's a better horse speaking of smooth the funniest thing and i gotta give it to you this graham and for the listener you could just go on youtube and or just type your name in on youtube it comes up this interview with graham benziger you're you're outside of one of the stalls and there's this horse and you were like yeah he has a you know he has a really bad attitude or he was very you know super aggressive he's like i really had these huge balls and like we we had you know we cut off his balls and i think he was just hurting his balls were so big when he would run like that would hurt and you know and you could see and i was like did he just say what i think he said that, <laughs> like the horse was upset because his balls were too big to run yeah i was yeah, like and it happens they and they'll twist a but nut nobody just expects like, you to no, say that just like humans they'll twist a nut or something it's yeah it, they get real mad yeah and, no i would be mad too <laughs> especially me that horse did get a little bit nicer but he's still kind of a dick we didn't fix what we'd hope. Well, he's a dick because you cut off his balls. <laughs> now he's just mad about that. Right. Mad about something different. I would be. Uh, is and it's legal to gamble at like the Kentucky Derby and these things. Yeah. And yeah. You, the betting is a is a huge part. It's really what drives the sport. And you do that. Yeah, I don't really bet big, and I bet like smaller amounts, but I bet them, you know, across races, and you know, because I and you again, win. my strength is handicapping and, yeah. and picking horses, and I'm I'm involved enough to know more than the average person, so I can. Yeah. And if you know how to bet well, you again, it's about hedging and taking your risk where it makes so, sense. And so if, on May third, let's assume the Derby's the fifth. May third, you will be getting a text from me. <laughs> what's the, what's send, probably, send me the picks. The picks. What are the picks? Because I love I love the gamble on the golf course. It's like. It's like gambling with a side of golf. Yeah. Yeah. All right, man. Before we go, let's talk about, um, I want to talk about the Turtle Ridge Foundation. I don't want to get out of here without talking about the good stuff yeah. you guys do. So this, what you guys, you and your family started, this is. Yeah, I started it's originally. It's crazy that, you know, most people in your, you know, position would call it the Bodie Miller Foundation. It was the Lance Armstrong Foundation. And it's the Turtle Ridge Foundation. Most people wouldn't yeah. even associate the two. Right. Now it's probably. It's it's a, it's always a battle of of you know trying to attract the attention and make it. It was easier to call it the Bodie Miller Foundation for sure, but at some point I fade into irrelevance as we all do, and I want it to kind of be able to sustain itself and not be so attached to my deal. And yeah. and the idea also was we didn't really ever want to get too big because when you get a certain size, it you know efficiencies go out the window, money starts to go funny places, and it's hard to manage. And we wanted more to be a a model of how to bring some accountability to a small town where people generally should be taking care of each other. And they generally do a good job, but it, we needed to be a hub to kind of attract that attention. That was really the, the, the goal. And so we have stayed small over, you know, whatever it is, 15 years now, but it's been, it's been cool to, to see, cause it, it does, it, it empowers people. I mean, right. and we didn't want to bring in the big corporate money that then makes people who donate 50 bucks or a hundred bucks or 500 bucks feel dumb when there's, you know, money coming in, it's 500,000. Um, and I think that's an important piece of of what it means to have a good foundation too, is empowering people to 
to give what they can instead of making them feel dumb for only having a little bit of sure. money to give. And um, but the the foundation has we've changed focus a little bit recently. Um, we were we're adaptive sports for primarily handicapped, disabled yeah, um, kids and and athletes, and then and then we've all we were youth sports as well from the beginning and then we moved into production of this mono ski because they were too expensive and i was we were just wasting money because we were buying basically retail production um mono skis for a 10 grand a piece and trying to fund these individuals or programs and it was it was too much right so then we started building our own That's we ski yeah we took we i took a bunch of the good ones reverse engineered them and skipped a bunch of patent stuff and, and just started producing them ourselves we could produce three or four for the same price we were buying one before. And that allowed us to be really um, much more effective with getting them out there and getting people on the hill. Because at the end of the day, that was that was the limiting factor was there just simply wasn't enough monoskis. There was way more people who needed them than there were skis. So monoskis, if you're paralyzed from the waist down, you yeah. sit in a you sit, sit in a down. seat and you know you're on a single ski and, and your and poles you, have and look like little ski little skis tips. on them. Yep. yep. And uh, and it's unbelievable hard, but the, the guys the who th- think of the core on that dude, the guys and some of the people are paralyzed higher up, or they don't have stomach muscles, so they're basically just using their shoulders to tip the thing back and forth. I've done it. I just all I do is wreck. I don't go anywhere. Right. Um, and that's I'm have all you know my muscles through, but um, but yeah, it's been it's been and now we're we're on to so we're gonna keep producing those, but we're back to primarily granting money to opportunities, getting kids into the mountains or people into the mountains and, you know, summer camps and, and stuff like that. And it's, you know, New Hampshire is our primary focus, but we have ties across the country and we grant money, um, across the country, different some hand bikes, you know, some... yeah, we do hand cycles. Yeah. Uh, we try to, but again, we have to buy them and they're, you know, how expensive that, that stuff is, is, you know, 10 grand gets you a normal hand cycle. And that's, it's just a lot of money for to us do, to raise. Yeah. But then, you know, in New Hampshire, we have, there's so many kids who, just come from families that just don't have money and they, they need the opportunities to get out there and participate in sports or, or go places. So it's, it's a pretty, it's a tight group. And, you know, we have a lot of really positive feedback from being able to change people's lives at that micro level, even though it's not, you know, we're not changing hundreds of thousands of lives. Um, you know, that I know, you know, your foundation, some of these really monster foundations yeah. like, you know, Michael J. Fox or, or those, sure. but I think you need both, you know, cause some of those issues are huge and they need massive attention and they need corporate money and corporate focus. And then some of them are small where it's more people taking care of people. No, it's, I mean, I don't, there are plenty of days go by. I wish that, I mean, like you, it started as the Lance Armstrong foundation or, or like you just alluded to. And then when it transitioned to live strong, it was, it was, I was almost like, ah, thank God my name is not on the door because it's, it, to me, that feels weird, but point being back when it was the LAF days is it, there's something about being small and just mm. having high impact and being yeah. able to do, you know, to, to, you know, know exactly what you're doing. Yeah. When, once you're raising 50 million a year, it's like, okay. Yeah. And it's going all over the place. And, and that's, that's important money. to do as well, but you need both certainly. Yeah. All right, man. Thanks for being here. Thanks Absolutely. for, thanks for being cool. Thanks for forgiving me for being such a douche <laughs> back in the day. No worries. Yeah. It's all good. Let's go skiing. Let's I got my it. new boots. <laughs> I, I already warned you about that. I like letting people make their own their own mistakes. Okay, well then I owe you two texts. One, I'll give you feedback <laughs> on my boots that I just got the other day. I'm very very excited. I've never been excited to ski in my whole life. Number one, number two, May third. I'm going to text you for the for the, the picks. picks. I'll have them ready. All right, thanks, buddy. All right. Hey, thanks for tuning in to the Forward Podcast. Like I said at the top of the show. Any suggestions or questions, send me an email. The new one, the forward at we do.team. And we do is spelled W E D U. The forward at we do.team. 
Thanks for tuning in each and every week. Look forward to talking to you next week.